got a lot to talk about today, huh? You, you're a pretty prolific dude, Adam. You've got your ethics podcast. You've got all kinds of stuff that you're writing on Medium about organizational pieces of data science. And then you're also doing your regular job, I imagine. Yeah, so I'm trying to be. Anyway, so I formerly worked for a consultancy that I loved, loved, loved to work for. Um, and if you've ever worked a consultancy, it's quite demanding. There's a lot to it. Um, I recently changed jobs to join Origami back in January. As a, so I'm now the heading up the head of machine learning engineering, which is kind of shaping the data team, helping them put the foundations in place to do MLOps properly and things like that. Trying to, they've lots of really really good uh, talent there, um, but not many people. One of the things we'll probably get onto. Not many people have done this before. So one of the advantages of being a consultant is that I've kind of been through it with customers, um, and off the back of that, I wanted to start my writing again and things like that. Um, so yeah, trying to trying to stick to one a week on Medium, and I had a bit of a slip the last few weeks, but trying to stick to one a week on Medium, um, try and get some talks done later in the year as well, and then yeah, the the podcast is um, just us exploring stuff and some really challenging kind of bits and pieces here and there, and getting people's opinions. It's it's very like expert led discussion on stuff I don't mostly know about, so it's good. Yeah, exactly. That's the the beauty of it. You just bring smarter people in and you get to learn. Hence the reason you're here (laughs) right now, (laughs) because you've got the experience in this. You've done it. I mean, I think we should probably hear first about your story. Like uh, you mentioned you were working in in a consulting company before you started Mm -hmm. working at Origami, but what brought you into tech? Yeah, okay. Well, so always been a colossal nerd. Like I thought actually at the beginning of um, lockdown that I'd be fine because I spent the first 25 years of my life locked in my room playing games. So I thought, oh, I'm trained for this. But actually, it was a bit of a struggle. I, I, it hit me a lot harder than I thought. But yeah, always been a nerd. Went and did chemistry once upon a time at uni. Uh, didn't really enjoy it. Um, then went on to become a competition bartender so I traveled around Europe making drinks and things like that for a bit fell in love with that um realized after a few years that I was never going to make enough money to buy a bar by working in one because uh, I wasn't that good um then thought right I need to go back and get a proper job so the stuff I enjoyed most from undergrad was like physicsy things so I did a physics master's um towards the end of that first picked up C and C++ and I was blown away I was like oh, I love this this is great I want to do that got on to do an engineering doctorate in laser physics. So I just wanted to play on a computer and build models and things like that. Um, so I found a really good doctorate to do that with. And I did, yeah, an NGD, which is un- unusual. A lot of people don't know about them, but so I've not got a PhD. I've got an NGD, which is uh, engineering doctorate, means I worked full-time for a tech company doing research for them. And I got to publish that research. Really, really cool qualification. Great course if you get the opportunity to do one. It's a good way to get some work experience and and get that kind of research training at the same time. And it was in there that I discovered uh, machine learning. So I built um, like a reinforcement learner thing that helped design laser systems that was really quite cool. Um, And I was like, right, I want to work in this space here. I also learned in that time that I don't think I want to work for huge organizations. So I work for a company called Tales, who are colossal. Um, 
And I thought, no, I want to try it. So I went completely the other way to a startup where like we didn't have the lights on and it was in like a pokey little office in the outskirts of Glasgow. And uh, that was great fun, really cool, um, really cool product. Started to learn, and this was like 2016, so it was quite a while back now, but the uh, I had to do all my own data engineering and things like that because that's kind of the way it was back then, especially in a smaller company. And I talk a lot about that in some of my blog posts. Oh, yeah. um, fell in love with startups and data science and I've been doing that ever since. Went from, sort of hopped through a few startups um, for various reasons, ended up in a consultancy that was where I really kind of found, like, because I, I like the sound of my own voice and I'm quite comfortable public speaking and things. Yeah. So, yeah, found my way into consultancy. Absolutely fell in love with that as well. I found that because I like the sound of my own voice um, and it's quite a rare skill, actually. And it's one of the ones I talk about a lot to people I train, that the communication being really important. And if you can put yourself out there, swallow the uncomfortable pills, learn to talk about what you do and and communicate effectively you'll go really far with it i often say that like i'm maybe not the smartest guy in the room i'm, I'm not like the sheldon cooper in the group but i can usually tell you what they're saying and and, and, tr- and do that translation and that's um a really powerful skill actually there was a data leaders um like supper club thing i did last week and they they were actually talking about analytics translator as a role that used to exist in some big organizations and it's that's certainly a thing i think especially in data science you really really have to do um so yeah, a bit of a whirlwind tour, went from uh, being a data scientist to running a big team back at uh, my last place and learned a lot of the uncomfortable lessons around management and people management. And so that's kind of where my a lot of my posts and stuff that you were mentioning um, live these days because my technical skills may be starting to rot a little bit and I'm getting more towards that people manager side. Um, do I have the odd day where I think, oh, I'd love to just go back to just coding all the time. Yeah, I mean, you have quite quite the interesting background there. I have to I have to ask, you're a competition bartender. What's your favorite cocktail? Uh, so there's a classic cocktail called an American Beauty, and if you ever look at the ingredients list, it looks mental, but it's really really good. So if you get um, okay. Del de Groff's uh, classic of the cocktail, it's in there, and that recipe is incredible done properly. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'll have to I'll have to check it out. American Beauty. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. It's like a rare uh, old one. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm a big fan of cocktail culture in a very amateur way. So I love, he- love hearing when other people are into it too. The next, Demetrius, yeah, the next uh, podcast, we're going to have to have a cocktail party. It won't be yeah, a coffee sure. session. It'll be the cocktail party session. Exactly. New, a new branded cocktail or coffee, <laughs> no, podcast, I should say. So yeah, I think... The main thing that I'm interested in, and you talk about this in your blog, and I know that your blog posts resonate with a lot of people. You say that you're not as technical these days, but there's a lot of what you're saying, which is so important for people to hear, right? Like you can go out and you can get the technical training and chops Mm. from whatever boot camp. But you can't get what you're saying in that boot camp, I don't think. They teach this organizational skills and the soft skills and the navigating politics. And so I think that's why a lot of people are really interested in what you have to say. And I personally resonated with that a lot because it felt like, wow, this guy's speaking some truth and he didn't 
talk about any kind of framework or tooling mm -hmm. or anything. It's just like straight organizational piece. And so for those who are listening that don't know, there you have two great blog posts that I've just stumbled upon. Uh, and we can kind of reference them throughout this chat. Yeah, the yeah. first one is why so many data scientists quit good jobs at great companies. And the other one is why you shouldn't hire more data scientists. And so I think the main question that comes to my mind instantly after reading both of these is what your prediction is or what your theory is on the high churn rate that you have in the data science role. Yeah, so I've got a lot of views on this. I think like... I'm very fortunate. There aren't that many folks that have that are in the data science manager or position or head of department position that have actually gone through the trenches a little bit and like been a data scientist because I think it's a very it's still a very new job title. Lots of influx of people into it. A lot of people you see that manage data science teams might have been just technical managers or software engineering managers or department heads, and so a big this. There's a lot here, and actually, I'm I can be quite negative about data scientists a lot, and it's only through I think a lack of experience and maturity and just the career as a whole, and kind of the hype's been quite to blame for this. But so you get a lot of this special citizen sort of stuff where oh we can't do agile because it doesn't work for data science. We can't do oh no it doesn't work like that. We're different, and like it's not it, it can work you have to be it's not exactly the same but you can make these things work and i think you as a consultant we used to find lots of these like technical managers that weren't data scientists struggling because they couldn't justify it and that's the thing these guys you're especially if you're hiring like phds you've got super clever people arguing for why essentially they don't want to be managed because like who does it's it's that that kind of mishmash and then it doesn't work deliverables don't arrive people get fed up the the other the, the height's really dangerous and been really bad actually and i've seen a few times like we've again stepped in to pick up a project that's not gone well because the data scientist has left and uh i used to have a a name for this that's explicit i won't say but it, i used to pretend there was this disease that lots of early career data scientists had right f around is right and it was that they would know the solution to a problem before they knew the problem so they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a Spark problem. Be like, oh, what? sorry. What? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's a Spark problem. And it's because they're new to the career and they want to learn Spark or they want to learn Dash or something like that. And it was, I, that's been really common. I've seen that a few times. And then they leave and you go in and go, why is this in Spark? Why have we done this like this? And try and unravel things. The get in the door, get the jobs really important to people. So they start. And then actually, once you've got a year under your belt, it's much easier to get the next job. So I think that can lead to churn. Frustrations at being managed. If you've come out of an academic mindset, and I don't mean to bash on data scientists here, right? Great bunch of people. I, I still identify as one. I just, these are observations. But people that, sometimes you find people that come out of the academic world have a very different mindset around like budgets and timescales. So like as long as you're publishing and, and contributing to the research, that's fine in academia. But in a business environment, there are stakeholders, there's budget, there's pressure. Like a lot of these people come in and don't know what it's like to have a project manager breathe down your neck like every single day. And that leads to frustration and then goes on to lead to churn and things like that. 
So quite a few things in there. Um, I could go on. And a reality check is tough love. That's what this is, because you're you're you know you're a data scientist and you get it. You get where the people are coming from, and this is a lot of tough love. And I cannot agree with you more when it comes to the two main points you made around not wanting to be managed, and then knowing the solution before the problem. I think to me, this has been, I'll start with the first one around the management thing. You're right. It's hard to find experienced managers who have the same technical background um, as many of the data scientists or machine learning scientists that are out there. But that resistance to being coached, the resistance to learning that there are alternative ways to solve problems, you know, particularly after you've gone through a very intensive academic training, I think that does lead to a lot of cultural problems around how data science works. And I think in my own company, the way that you know I try to approach it in terms of, I'm actually the first machine learning engineer at my company, but really it's like, as a machine learning professional, as a data professional, you have to be one of the most humble people in the company mm-hmm. because you are so dependent on the outputs of the other, com- other groups. And if those, gives, if those groups see you as not a crucial stakeholder and are just content with giving you bad data because it doesn't really affect their operations, you're not going to go anywhere, right? And so that humility is so crucial. And the second part, knowing the solution for the problem. I mean, this I can't so even good. tell you the number of times. I specifically try to test for that in, 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 in interviews where we have, um, yeah, I could tell whole stories about it, but you know, where this, the, the, the problem is defined in a way where you can't use the right solution or the perfect solution. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to go for a compromise and that, so like, how would, you know, you're a leader now, you're a manager, you know, and you're, you're out, the, out on the market hiring. I mean, how do you approach the problem of, of avoiding maybe, you know, talent that might have some of these deficits or how do you coach people up? What's your perspective on that? Yeah, so uh, it's probably worth framing everything I say in the, again, basically mainly worked at startups, small to, and then consulting into more, small to medium. If you're working for like fang-like companies, some of this maybe goes out the window where you can have super specialists that know like one thing inside out, right? So I'm not, I'm not really talking about them. I'm talking about some of the smaller organizations that are maybe starting that kind of journey. But yeah, look, if I'm out in the market looking for this, I, I do want humble people, right? And I say to people, it's not all going to be data science, machine learning. Like you're going to have to, and I, I think I say it in one of those blog posts that you, you do get that kind of data everything role where you'll be doing dashboards, you'll be doing cleansing, you'll be helping on the odd report here and there. And like one of the best ways, if you're the first data science into a small place, I would say one of the first things to do is try and automate like the CFO's workflow, try and save three hours a week off of something they do. And it's a bit of a political thing because they're the guys with the checkbooks, like they're the men and women that are going to sign off what you do, right? So if you can make an ally of them, when you start to have the tough conversations about, yeah, when you're trying to get investment into a longer term thing that you've got a good idea is going to be beneficial, they'll be on your side a little bit more. That's the other thing. Techies don't like playing the game and playing a politics. I think you have to do that a little bit. Um, When I... I think as a hiring manager, you have to make it very clear as well. I think trying to sell the role to really good talent, I think actually backfires a lot of the time. I like to lay it all on the table and just go, this is the nature of the role. You're going to be in a software engineering team. They're going to expect unit testing and integration testing. That You're going to be doing agile. You're going to be doing this. And if they're if that's not for you, then this isn't the right place for you. Best of luck. Like off you go kind of thing. And I'd rather have someone that's willing to, fit in and 
I kind of, in some other roles, I used to always say as well, the only thing you actually need, right, is enthusiasm and a bit of charisma because everything else can be taught. I can teach you, if you sit next to me for long enough, I can teach you pretty much everything else. I can't teach you to care about the standard of your work or what we're doing. And it's quite hard to teach people charisma, but everything else you'll pick up. I want to second the idea around like learning something. It was just beforehand what Vishnu was talking about and what you mentioned like knowing the solution before the problem and why do they know that solution because they want to they want to learn that like right. specific tooling and this is something that Flavio brought up in one of like one of the first meetups that we had and he dubbed it I think it's probably a commonly known term but he was calling it resume driven development and oh that's such a good term it's it's perfect for that and I uh I may have to write a blog post or I'll just default to you writing one, Adam. And <laughs> around, yeah, who can get to it first exactly? Around this idea of resume-driven development. Uh, and I think that's fascinating to look at just on it, in its own right. But the other things that you're mentioning are also crucial. Like the idea of not playing the game and the politics that are involved in the workplace and so how do you go about navigating that besides making friends with the cfo yeah yeah look you don't want to be little finger right you but you just have to be aware of it you just have to the taking that because what a lot of think there's such a resistance to it a lot of people take that stance was like well i won't do that and it's like it's sort of like a virtuous thing, but it, it can be really damaging. And if you start, and it, and it will lead to you getting frustrated when you start getting passed up for promotions or opportunities to do cool projects, you, you just have to be wary of it. And you have to realize, I think the other thing is that other people don't have the same experience or the context that you do. And actually, so I, I tell everyone in my teams all the time, you ever communicate anything to me it's got to be idiot proof right and i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to you like i'm a complete idiot that's to hide the fact that i am a complete idiot but it's like i say if you show me a figure right if i don't instantly understand it if you have to explain the figure to me it's bad because ultimately i know that the kinds of anyone as soon as you make someone feel like they don't understand something they'll get defensive and then you start to have that clash and this you get this like branded with like intellectual snobbery and that's a really damaging thing I've been in situations where we've tried to do stuff and IT departments have gone, oh, no, we're going to do that. And and you're like, it's like you're trying to take something off them. You're getting to do the fun stuff and they're, they're not. And you have to bring everyone on that journey with you. This is why we're going to do it. Look, this is why I need you to commit six weeks to me doing a project that hasn't got any defined outcomes because I need to explore the chance that this could work. If you land and that's the first thing you do no one's going to say yes you need to build that trust that confidence and things like that and understand that it's something in one of Brené Brown's books I read recently and she talks about you have to assume everyone's doing the best they can and if you start from that assumption so even the people that are defensive or opposed to what you're saying start from that assumption it makes it easier to kind of unravel okay well why are they so resistant to what I've said I know that this is right. Oh, okay. They've been burnt in the past. I didn't know that, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's fascinating how you, you mentioned that. I mean, it's a great outlook on life in general because you're going to be, you're probably going to be a lot happier if you look at things that way and through that lens mm-hmm. than if you're Absolutely. looking at it like, 
everyone's out to get me or they just don't understand me or whatever. Uh, and I'm thinking about the books. You also mentioned another book in this blog post. It's Exit, Voice, Loyalty, and Neglect Model. It's mm-hmm. not. Is that a book or is it a model that's inside of a book? Yeah, it, I think it was a piece of research because it's quite old, actually. I think it's from yeah. like, old. It's from the 70s. I think it's it was a piece of research that became a book. Um, the Wikipedia page is excellent. So if it, save having to read the whole book, you, you can get the gist of it from, and I'm a big fan of like mental models and things like that, being a, a yeah, computational modeler for a living. Um, so I, I really liked it because it, it essentially talks about when you're dissatisfied with something, you've only really got four options. You can neglect yeah. your responsibilities and just let things waste away and that will lead to the death of whatever it is you're doing right that's one way to do it and I, I think the original models framed in the context of like political structures in like small countries where the government's doing the wrong thing um or being really oppressive so you either neglect responsibilities and just shirk what, what you're supposed to do you voice them so you start doing protests you try and actively change things um, you, you make an effort to really shift the needle. You persist, so you just put up with it, don't do anything about it, you just carry on and just live with this dissatisfaction. Or last model is, you, yeah, you just leave, right? You just go and go somewhere else where it's better. And it, uh-huh. it's a, that does apply to like any situation that you're, you're in, that you're dissatisfied with, whether that be a, a job, a marriage, like you know, the country you live in. And the thing about it all is actually the only one that, makes a positive change for everyone is voice everything else leaves either the other people that were with you in that environment in a negative position or leaves you in a bad position whereas voice can if you if you go through with voice and you make it make a positive change everyone benefits so i'm a big fan of being very vocal very candid like very open yeah i think the best way that i heard politics described is that it's simply who get who gets what, you know? And if you're not interested in getting anything, then don't play politics. But if yeah. you're interested in getting something, you as you simply must. <laughs> it's the way humans interact, right? And it doesn't always need to be negative, and it doesn't always need to be a negotiation. It can be highly collaborative, right? You can build a coalition. You don't just have enemies, you know. And I think I think that's that's an important realization to have when you're walking into any kind of environment where there's complexity. Um, one question I have is, you know, so sort of associated with this, this idea of, you know, why data scientists leave great companies, you also sort of had the other post about you probably don't need a data scientist, right? And so sort of jumping off that particular post, you know, which talks about the alternative data professionals, you know, engineers, software engineers, um, data analysts. What is, it, what is it about high-performing data orgs that you think they do well to compensate for some of the deficits that we're talking about in a lot of modern data science professions? Yeah, so that's a really good question. It's quite hard. It's, it's very dependent on where you are in your journey with it, right? So like, if you're a small company and then you think machine learning is going to be at the core of what you're doing, right? It is the product. Then actually hire, hire a bunch of data scientists and do exactly what I say don't do. Use them as clever people that can do a bit of everything, right? The, the kind of master generalist. That's great. I always joke that, um, yeah, data scientists can do everything slower and more expensively than everyone else, but they can do everything. And that's the important bit. 
and that's how a lot of data scientists end up getting used. And then that that's that post about stop hiring them is is kind of about that. In that, as a hiring manager, think about your actual requirements. Don't don't just fill the gap with data scientists if you're big enough that. Like if you think this person's just going to be doing reporting all the time, probably look at BI developers. Or if you're just going to be developing APIs and things like that, having these clever people and there's a certain like flavor of people that end up in these data science roles. They're they're inquisitive, they're curious, they're good with loose kind of open um, requirements and things like that, and turning them into real value. So they are super useful, but they'll leave if they don't get to do the thing they want to do. They'll eventually leave, and actually, like. They might be twice as expensive as a, a junior software engineer that could rattle out these APIs in no time and things like that. So that's kind of where that that blog post is. Someone asked me on LinkedIn like about that post. What's the, what's the ratio? What's the numbers? And I was like, I might I might try and capture some of that in a post, but I've got a feeling that will lead to absolute madness. Like I don't think that's that healthier thing to try and do. But I like to think what. <laughs> so the data science as a terms a nightmare as well. I really don't like the actual terminology. The fact that. All these other yeah, job titles just awesome. got rebranded, and now we're seeing it get re- like things like machine learning engineer and research scientist. If you go to Amazon, pop out the other side of it where it's like a different specialism of data scientist. So I think we'll see that happen more and more and more as the machine learning data space matures. But I think what have you got these people in for? What's their what's their niche skill set that makes them most valuable? If you've hired a PhD at a premium rate they are trained to do research you don't need 12 lead researchers on the same project right you need you look at the, the way academic institutions do it you need one so give them the support team that they need give them a superstar data engineer give them a superstar software engineer and they'll go quicker and they'll complement each other instead of just bundling a load of people that want to explore and might not have the, the rigor and the discipline to turn it into that machine that's going to churn out value really quickly yeah i mean the I think I, I resonate with a lot of what you said, and what it really is about is is being fundamentally thoughtful about data and and what it means to your company and how the right group of professionals can exploit whatever it might mean. It might be to just inform operations. It might be to drive incredible value in the product that totally differentiates you, or it might just be for financial reporting, right? Quarterly, you know, performance metrics, right? So you have to be fundamentally thoughtful, and you know now. <laughs> I'm at this point in my career where a couple of my friends are, are, are going out trying to start companies. And so they say, hey, hey, Vishnu, uh, you know, I want to start a company. I want to I want to have some machine learning in it. Uh, <laughs> you know, how do I how do I do that? How do I how do I make this a machine learning oriented company? And I'm like, look, I matter to you a lot less, you know, as a machine learning engineer than you think, because if you're thoughtful about your data strategy and what mm-hmm. data means to your company, you may never need me. And you will never be at my mercy <laughs> of me saying, oh, you know, I'm going to command X, Y salary um, and, and this, I need all these resources to do anything, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the best position to be in. Um, so I, I totally, totally resonate with that. And I think the, the interesting thing kind of about what you're saying, uh, sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but mm-hmm. you're really, really hitting on some points with me is data science as a professional sort of group is almost more about you as a person than you as a widget, right? Mm -hmm. Or as a particular, you know, um, skilled professional, right? Because 
we don't know exactly what skills make a you know data science professional perfect. Like in software engineering, you know, you got to know certain computer science fundamentals. You have to pass a certain interview, but we don't know that with data science. And I think I wish a lot of early career data scientists understood that and said, it's just my success is just as driven by who I am as much as what I can do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like that's so crucial. I think Demetrius was going to uh, say something there. Yeah, first off, I knew you were going to love this chat with Adam. We almost, <laughs> Vishnu almost couldn't make it. And I was like, oof, we might have to rebook because he is going to love talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that you made it. And it was, uh, it's happening now. The one thing that I think about, uh, because I read the book from the founder of Pixar, Creativity Inc., and there, he is a big fan of this candor talk and being candor. And so when you're looking at a data science program and you're seeing that it's not really aligning with what they're trying to do and being candor about that, like without getting yourself fired, I think is one thing that maybe you have some opinions on or tips on how to navigate that again yeah okay and i think maybe where i'm a bit weird there but i and i would say look if you're a data scientist and you've got the experience you've you've managed to get the golden ticket you're on the dream career whatever right and you've got the experience you're now quite a rare highly desirable person or resource for lots of companies so get fired doesn't matter like it actually doesn't matter because if you're in the kind of yeah, environment where they're not doing the right stuff, they're not going to take open, honest feedback well, and you're going to kill some sort of golden goose and upset the the boss's boss or whatever. Then you, do you want to work there? Like that that would be my advice, and that's really uncomfortable and difficult to do. But trust me, you are in high demand. If you're a brand new data scientist and you're feeling that way, I'd question. Do you have the experience to make that call just yet? Maybe give it a year and, and bide your time a little bit. So, but certainly speak up and voice your opinions. But uh, yeah, I think as, when you get past a certain point, it doesn't it doesn't matter too much. You're either doing stuff you love or you're wasting your time. I think that way of thinking and that that thought is perfect. So all the, uh, the all the recruiters. I was going to say, all the recruiters yeah. in the uh, audience would love that answer. <laughs> they are. <laughs> That's uh, floating around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the other thing that I wanted to touch on was the disconnect between the senior stakeholders and the data scientists. And we had Luigi on here like a week ago, Luigi from ML in Production. And he was talking about how helpful it is for him as a, like, the manager of a data science team now to really understand the stakeholders needs and what problem they're trying to solve and like the it helps to get more clarity into the business because then you're able to say well maybe we could go down this path and we could try and solve what you're looking for or translate what you're looking for into this solution. But maybe there's other lower hanging fruits that we can just Mm -hmm. get a quick win on. And so I really, I think we could 
harp on this for a moment, like the disconnect and how to better bridge those gaps. Yeah. So the, the reason I actually got into consultancy was because I started to believe that I'd been in a couple of environments where I'd got the job, I'd had maybe a 12-week project, I delivered it, and then crickets, like that was it. It was done. It was in production. Oh, we've got all this BI that needs doing. Oh, there's a database that needs admin. And you think, oh, wait a minute. And like the business weren't as far. They got caught up in the hype maybe. They weren't as far forward on their data analytics journey as they needed to be. And I thought, well, actually, that's a, and again, that's where I started to form this really expensive kind of not very good software engineer idea. <laughs> like that's all I'm being hired for. And so I thought consultancy was a good model, actually. For a lot of organizations, I would suggest before you just go out and commit to bringing someone in and some expensive talent search, engage with a consultancy, do a four-week POC, get them to tell you, like, there's no legs in this or there is and things like that. When it comes to, and I got a reputation for being the only guy running a data science consultancy that was trying to convince everyone not to do any data science because of exactly that. It was the... Um, where's the value in this actually? And I, I did lots of talks way back about how actually automating a load of reporting or cleaning up like your data streams is going to deliver more value faster to the key decision makers in your, your organization than getting up a 2% increase on your the accuracy of a revenue model because you've gone from Excel to neural networks or whatever. And now no one understands it. It can't be maintained by anyone but you. It's a nightmare to put into production and keep and like, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that phrase, the uh, really expensive, not very good good software engineer. And I think I sometimes definitely feel that way. <laughs> you know, it's I, I think every data scientist who has ever, you know, walked into an environment or machine learning professional has definitely felt that way. Um, because that's the reality of what you need to do to be effective, mm -hmm. right? And that has to be your focus, is being effective, not, you know, being admired, not necessarily, you know, uh, being viewed as special, it's being effective. I think that's really what you talk about as well. And, you know, I'm, I actually like your point a lot about thoughtful use of consulting. Um, I've actually, you know, thought in my own company, hey, it'd be really nice if we could, you know, bring in like an external, you know, sort of professional who'd done this and, and seen it in a number of different environments and says, this is what should work in your environment, or this is what, this is the way your environment is different and similar than others. And I'm kind of curious, what were some of the most educational experiences for you as a consultant, as sort of like a data science consultant? Because it seems like it really formed your perspective on some mm -hmm. of these challenges. Well, the, the thing that I love about the career as a whole, actually, is that now all the, the best data scientists have a lot of industry knowledge and domain knowledge, right? They are the absolute best of the best in any domain will know the industry inside they are, but you can, I can go into your organization with no idea about what you do. You give me the data, a little bit of a brief. I can probably tell you something you don't know. I can probably pitch you a new figure or a new model that shows you something you never thought of because I, because of the skills that we have and that, that ability to abstract things away. And because I think a lot of data scientists come from like a sciencey background where you do a lot of that. So that was gold and then that was really hammered home for me once so we did a i did a huge project for a, an oil and gas super major and i was delivering the outcomes to that uh, you know in the boardroom to like this it was obviously not the boardroom of the super major but of a research group within the company and talking through it and all this it was looking at uh, like clustering and things some really weird and wonderful stuff in there and then we stepped away from that and then a week later i did a 
like an art of the possible session with the childcare charity up in Scotland. And they had this thing, they showed me some data and it clicked that actually, if you took a bit, a bit of a, like an orthogonal view of their data and looked at it a certain way, I could do exactly the same thing I'd done with this super major, looking at oil and gas wells as I could do with the, this childcare data. And it blew them away and they were like, oh, that's really, really clever. And I just thought, where else can you do stuff like that? Take, take your solutions and, and reapply them and rebuild them and spread that value. So, yeah, and I think on that point about communicating things and trying to get your point across, one of the bits of advice I give all of like my team, I say, turn everything into pound coins or dollars if you're in the US and seconds. And preferably turn the seconds into pound coins or dollars as well, because no one cares about accuracy. No one cares about recall. No one cares about your precision, right? No one cares. What they care about is pound coins. Such a great I point. No one agree with that more. Accuracy. No. <laughs> we need to make that into a shirt. That <laughs> I think is, that's the quote. That is the quote right there that you're going to get your face is going to go up on the MLOS quote slide <laughs> and you're going to get that <laughs> in a few well, days. So that's sweet. And well, there's something that for me is really interesting as we're talking about this and as we're, we're kind of harping on data scientists and there's a lot of data scientists that are coming into the MLOps world right now and they're trying to find their footing and for data scientists, like we've heard everything, uh, the whole spectrum of a, a, for a data scientist, it's really hard to get into MLOps to like, oh yeah, it shouldn't be that hard at all. They, they can just jump into it. It's an easy transition. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, first of all, from your own journey into MLOps and how to productionize these machine learning models when you are a data scientist and then just in general if there's any tips that you found along the way or you've seen yeah really good so uh, it's, it's hard i think it is hard right especially if like me it depends on your background i guess if like me you're a scientist that sort of learned to code and a bit of a garage software engineer then you, you're not used to some of this stuff and like cicd can be a bit scary there's all these terms right that you don't know about and wait a minute i've been learning like maths for god knows how long um what i would say starting out as a data scientist just tell everyone to do this learn something like docker and just build your own very simple like kubernetes docker get it spun up in a cloud service really easy straightforward i wrote a blog post on this actually an end-to-end just take the iris mod the iris data set build a model stick it in a flask api all that it's really basic and it will take you take someone about two hours to go through it but but the first time you do it you feel like wow oh it's a web page that i can log into that hosts my model and you start to get it now that's not going to get you an mlops job absolutely not but you start to click with some of the things like what does what does he mean by get and post calls on the api and things like that when you're talking to software engineers i know you had you had val um on from google didn't you and i've got his book just sat there actually on design patterns which is an incredible book um but there's just so much to it and i think the challenge in bigger organizations when you're doing it properly there's lots of emerging tools the patterns are all new 
and it's so different from what a lot of software engineers know. So you you will get met with resistance. Be like, why do we need a feature store? What do you mean? Why don't we just do this like that? What what like, why have you taken all these decisions? Why where's the Kafka topic and all this? And these can be really challenging things. And again, you need to bring the software engineers on the journey with you. And let them take you on their journey as well, because they know this stuff inside out. You need to adopt like that productionization stuff, really pick it up. Um, it's really, really hard, I think. Learn learn something like, pick a tool like MLflow, that's quite easy to get going with and just see like why were the decisions made. Try and get it working, but think about why does it work the way it does. Um, a big fan of like Kubeflow, but that is really challenging to get going unless you've got a load of Kubernetes wizards sat behind you mm -hmm. and things like that. It's um, it's not easy, but just start doing it. Like start doing little projects, start picking things up. This community is excellent in that I bet if you said, right, I can do this and that, here's a, a project, can someone review it? They probably would, right? And that's the best thing about the data community, yeah. any community, is we love helping each other out and giving our opinion on stuff, right? So go and farm that. And then ask, what could I do next? Where could I make this better? What's the next level up? How, what's the staircase to get me to being a really good ML ops engineer? And you'd have screeds of people feedback and try and help you, I think. The, and I was talking to somebody just last week and they were a software engineer by trade. And their situation is one of which where it's like they get handed a model and they're saying, okay, so I've got this model, but now what do I do? Uh, mm. And so it's a little bit like, imagine you're the DevOps person and you get handled this model. And what they were asking me was like, so I just want to know what are the stacks and why would you use one over the other? And I was just like, that is exactly why this community exists because we're, we're all trying to figure that out right mm -hmm. now. Right, we we're not quite sure on what the best way and the best practices are, but as you mentioned, we're very generous with helping each other, and I mm -hmm. think that's one of the beauties of the the community. And as you mentioned, like even just the data community in general, it doesn't have as much of that pretentiousness as you can mm -hmm. find in other places. The, and that's the thing, like. You could probably do all of this with any one tool, right? It might not be the best way of doing it, but yeah. all tools are pretty pretty much do all of it, right? If you had enough time and the, the kind of the passion to do it. There's lots of tools though, and it's quite difficult. And uh, what do you mean by productionize or a model? Do you mean get it working if I go to uh, like the the URL, or do you mean like drift monitoring, retraining, things like that, like all that that real more advanced stuff do you want it to do yeah like to be resilient and robust across regions and things like that like it, there are scales and it, it's trying to pick off the bits and it's and it's testament to the size of the community right how quickly the mlops community has grown it's it just shows you how desperate people are to find that knowledge Everyone in that community, I guarantee, is looking for answers from someone else. Even the experts, the people you think, oh, wow, they must be a wizard. They'll be looking for answers off of other people. And the other thing is beginners can help beginners a lot as well. There's a really good book, Show Your Work, that talks about 
um, just it's basically like just start talking about. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, presenting what you do. Start writing blog posts, even if you're a beginner, because your perspective is really important. The value isn't in the content, right? I can go and read the docs. Your, the value is in your perspective of the content and, and trying to bring it together and curate it into something useful for other people. Two thoughts that you just jogged in my head. One, when you talked about, you know, when Demetrius asked that great question about how does a data scientist, you know, kind of get into ML ops. You know, I had a friend, a software engineering friend, say this to me in a very offhand, ma- offhand manner, but it completely blew my mind. And he was like, everything is the web. Like, everything is internet. Everything, like, all models of interaction, all models of software, everything is influenced by the fact that we have this huge network that is powered by low latency technology. You have to understand how it works because it will it'll totally change the way you think about how all of the technical systems work. Because it's really a marvel. It works. <laughs> and that's how we're going to do things going forward. You know? And I was like, completely mind blown. Because I was like, that's that's not how I thought about the web. And that's mm. not how I thought about, you know, my own technology development should look like. But when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You know? Um, and then on the productionizing point, I, I think you just made a great point about how, like, what really is productionizing? You know? For me, like, right now, I'm trying to productionize a model and I would say, like, you know, I think what we tried, what, the way I try to articulate it always is, you know, uh, come from that data intensive systems book, designing data intensive systems. Yeah, okay. um, so I always say, how are we getting to maintainable, scalable, reliable, right? And whatever that means in this environment, and however it needs to integrate with a broader software architecture and product design, that's what productionizing a model means. Um, so, but it's tricky. It is really tricky. Yeah. And you know, h- how do you you know, maybe educate clients on some of the uncertainty around how these things are done. Um, or, or, you know, clients, stakeholders, partners, whoever it might be. Yeah, that's really hard. So, like, when you're a consultant, obviously, like, it's you're trying to sell your expertise and your, your experience. So the advantage is, hopefully, you've already done that kind of work. I'm sure blagging must occur um, here and there. It, I again trying to be open and honest and say to people, look, what you're that's that's difficult to do. What you're trying to say is difficult to do. Other people might tell you they've done it so far, like go for it. Um I'm a big fan of putting your hand up and saying when you don't know something and sharing that risk. Like I'm happy to take risks in my job, right? If I know I'm taking them. If I don't know I'm taking them, then things get really dangerous when you assume knowledge and things like that. Trying to bring internally in stakeholders, I like so internally in my role now. I say to people, look, this is an emerging technology. This is like we're looking at Kubeflow, and some of it's still in alpha. So we're like, do we really want to bake dependencies on an alpha technology into our platform? Is that really stupid, actually? Um, do we want to try and rebuild some of it ourselves? That sounds really expensive as well. These are hard decisions to make. Going in and just saying we're using Kubeflow, that's it. Let's go. That could be quite damaging because then further down the line, when you come unstuck, everyone's going to sort of point out, whoa, whoa, you you assured us this was safe and things like that. And I think that kind of applies at all levels. I think another thing that, because you're kind of given, you're given a lot of intellectual authority as a data scientist and in these data roles, people think you're the smart ones and you get, I hate it, but it gets banded around all the time. Oh, the clever guys (laughs) in data, blah, blah, blah. And then... And the challenge as well, if you're a bit charismatic, is that I can speak confidently about anything, right? I might not know the first thing about it, but I can just have a confident conversation about anything. 
if you've also given me intellectual authority because I'm a data guy, you're just going to believe me. That's a super dangerous place to be. So I'm really, and I think people need to be aware of that. It's really, it's like a superpower. If you get, if you get ready to put your hand up and say, that's not my thing. I don't know the first thing about that. I do it all the time at work. I go, don't hang about that. That's not me. People just stop and they're like, oh, right. And, and it builds trust that when I do say I do know something, they, they come on that journey with me. And you're not like, that always right, but sometimes actually wrong person that's quite difficult to work with. You become a real asset to the team and you learn more as well. When someone goes, well, actually, no, I know that inside out and here's all the things you've missed. There's two I, pieces that so, you're saying there that are incredible. The first one where you were like, hey, let's idiot proof things in the beginning there. And then this right here. Sorry, Vishnu, I cut you off. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I had something that I wanted to say, but now I can't even, I can't remember what I was going to say after no, that I, one. It was more along the lines, I think, of uh, when you are trying to make these decisions and you're weighing your options of a cube flow and do, like you said, like, do we want to build this? Do we want to bake in dependencies? Do we want to look for something that's a little bit more like a managed service or whatever, how are those decisions made? Is it just the data science team? Are you bringing in all the stakeholders? What does that process look like? Yeah, I think it's probably tiered in the, I want to get into the weeds with the data science team and some of the software teams, um, the techie, because like people love talking tech and, and arguing about the intricacies of it all. But, the commercial kind of businessy stakeholders don't. So you want to protect them for that. And that's kind of what you're paid to do, right? You're, you're the expert in your bit. So come to maybe a conclusion or a few options and then pitch it honestly and openly to that wider group. And the other thing is argue passionately about what you want and then immediately passionately support whatever decisions made that's the kind of the best way to contribute i think because then people will know that a you're always going to be good to work with and b you're you're going to make good arguments for what you want and there's none of this i told you so because you've 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 been the good citizen you've helped out so yeah i think you do need to bring everyone on the journey and otherwise you can alienate people you can end up building stuff that people don't agree with and then because you get in those weird awkward political situations where you, you make a decision and then nine months down the line a couple of people leave and actually the people that didn't agree with it don't want to support it and so let's just revert to excel spreadsheets and all of a sudden all that value is lost and it was a big waste of money but you've done some good resume development so. yeah the resume driven development and no i think that you're you're mentioning some interesting points here too like that's huge to passionately argue your point, but then if the ultimate decision is not what you wanted, passionately going for that, and you said it perfectly, so that you can really be seen as that team player, as someone that is great to work with. And then you're not using any alternative motives or ulterior motives and trying to sabotage this project because it's not being done on Kubeflow or whatever your preference tool is that month. I, 
really think that's some spot on info. This has been absolutely incredible. I would love to talk to you all day. I know that you are a busy man though, and you've got a team to run. So I want to be conscientious of your time and I want to thank you for coming on here and talking to us about this. I'm going to keep sharing all of your blog posts. I'm one of your biggest thank fans you. on the blog. <laughs> that is for sure. I have to get a medium subscription just to read your blog posts because I've read too well, many. Well, I, could get, I can get you a, a friend link, actually, for my Oh, dude. There ah, are friend links. Yeah. Dude, send us the friend links, yeah. please. You're okay. not going to make any cash on, on me then. Right. I think I'll pass up the odd 10 cents here and there. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, look, That's it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Look, love talking to you. Love the show. Love the community. It's brilliant. It's a marvel what you've done in in the last year and a bit. It's it's incredible. So keep up the good work. And yeah, would love the chance to come and talk about data next time. Actually, because I think I've waffled a lot about sort of people stuff. But yeah, the organizational problems. This is such a big piece of it. And somebody just said in the Slack the other day, they were like. Yeah, it feels like everywhere that I go and all the blog posts that you see, it's always talking about tooling or frameworks, but it, we we know that it's not only that and there this feels like the only community that's not doing that and it's talking about this organizational piece. And so I want to kind of double down on that because I know that whenever we do surveys, we always ask is MLOps an organizational problem or a tooling problem or a technical problem? And people resoundingly, it's like 90 to 10% or like 90% organizational and then 10%, I don't know. <laughs> and then like 0 0.001 tooling, I think is what it comes down to. So I really want to like help try and find those best practices that you have seen and that everyone in the community has seen that help just get the models into production and navigate these murky waters. Yeah, and it might so my favorite quote because it kind of it's a bit of a get out of jail free card quote. But my favorite quote by George P. Box is, um, "All models are wrong, but some are useful." I love it. I use it all the time in every context, right? And I don't know all the answers. I'm not right. This is stuff that I've done that seems to work in my case. I'd love, love, love to hear from people that, that really passionately disagree with me because then I get to learn something. Yes, that you heard cool. it here first. If you disagree, let us know in the comments or write a review on iTunes or whatever whatever you're listening to us on. That's it for today. Thanks again, Adam. This was really Thanks cool. Thanks very much, team. Thanks, Adam.